All right, let's start with prayer, and then we'll jump into the sermon. Father, Lord, we just praise your name. We glorify you. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together, to gather together around the table, to partake of communion together, and Lord, to be unified as a church community in you, Christ, and one to another. So Lord, I pray that you would produce that in us here and draw us to yourself through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as Tia said, and as our campaign coming up, regarding our campaign that we're in and the conference week that is coming up, our campaign is called The Table. So we've been talking about this for a good bit now. And when we talk about the table in the Christian circles, it usually refers to communion, how we come together around communion and we share communion together. You may have heard communion referred to as the Lord's Supper or as the Eucharist. Uh, and we've explored already what that means and what the table is all about. And the original table where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper in Luke chapter 22. So in this campaign, we've been taking communion every week as we've been talking about how we as a church are to come around the table together. Last week, we started talking about the unity that is supposed to be expressed in the church and is revealed in communion that we share together. So this unity that we're supposed to share as a church community is centered here. It's centered on Christ. And what we're remembering when we take communion together. So we're going to continue this theme this week. Last week, I kind of jumped the gun a little bit and went to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I probably should have pumped the brakes and stayed here and done this one last week and the last week's sermon this week, but whatever. We're going back, okay? So we're going back to the uh, original institution of the table, the original Lord's Supper where Jesus is instituting what we now practice in communion. And we're going to go back to John's gospel. Okay, so John's gospel, uh, interestingly, it doesn't, he doesn't go through the uh, institution of the Lord's Supper like Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because they generally have similar content. They most likely shared similar sources with Mark being the first one. John it has a lot of the same stories, but it's kind of from a different angle on a lot of things. And in this conversation, this meal that they share together, the Passover meal, the night before Jesus is betrayed, John takes four chapters, 13 through 17, and he just expounds what Jesus talks about. He, he just really dives into this conversation that they had. And in this, you see the intimacy that Jesus shared with his disciples and how this meal, Jesus' last meal with them, how he had been longing to have this meal with them, he shares some of his most important words with his disciples, the things that he wants them to remember before he goes to the cross. So we're going to turn there. We're only going to read a part of it. I'm going to ask you tomorrow in the devotional to read through the whole thing. So just like sit down. We've done this before as a church, but I think it's really, really important for us to read big chunks of scripture together. Ideally, read like whole books, and that's great, where you can get the flow of the whole thing, but that takes some time if you're reading through the Gospel of John, so I get it. But read through at least John 13 through 17 in one sitting, okay? So carve out some time, just read it, so that you can get the picture of everything Jesus says, the flow of the conversation, the back and forth that he has with his disciples, and you kind of grasp a little bit more about what he's trying to say when you do that and how significant this conversation is. You can also just like put it on the Bible app and it'll read to you 
while you're just like doing stuff around the house and have it, have it going, or you can just sit and listen to it. I was going to just read it for you in the devotional, but I'm like, the dudes on the uh, Bible app devotional, their voices are incredible. You guys don't want to listen to me when you can just like listen to a professional reader. They're amazing. It's so soothing and just amazing. Okay. And they like, don't make mistakes. I, I make mistakes so many times, like reading the devotional and doing it. I'm like, how on earth do these guys, that has to take forever to read through the entire Bible. Anyways. <clears throat> okay. So John 17, we're just going to focus in on the end here. So this section is called the high, the high Priestly Prayer of Jesus. So this is Jesus praying. He's already prayed earlier in chapter 17 for the disciples specifically. So he's sitting, imagine the scene. They're sitting at a low table, right? This is the Passover meal that Jesus is sharing with his disciples. We've already explored a lot of the themes and the meanings of what is in this Passover meal together. They're sitting around this table. It's a long time, okay? So think of a dinner party that you had where you eat the meal, and then you like go migrate to the couch, and there you have a long conversation. Right? All of that just kind of happened around the table. They would sit at the table, they'd have pillows around them, they'd kind of just lounge at the table, eat the meal, and then share a very long ceremonial conversation where they'd share the story of the Exodus and God's deliverance of the people of Israel. They'd stop and take a drink of wine here and there, and they would just have symbolic meaning to the entire meal. So. This is all happening there, and then this, Jesus, at the end of it, he prays. He pauses, and he prays. So if you're like, man, I don't really know how to pray. Like, one, Jesus taught us how to pray in the Sermon on the Mount. Also, read this, and you can get a picture of how we ought to pray. Jesus kind of modeled for us how we pray. And the disciples took note, especially John. He took note in reading this of what Jesus prayed for, the themes that he prayed for. Because again, this is the night before he's about to be betrayed and go to the cross. This is what he chooses to pray for. So he says, my prayer, after he's already prayed for the disciples, is not for them alone, the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So remember, John is writing this to that first generation of the church after the apostles. So he's praying for them, but also every like subsequent generation who believes the message of Jesus, Christians throughout history, who have believed the message of Jesus through the message of the apostles. The message of the apostles we get in the New Testament and in the Gospels themselves. Okay, So if you've believed in Jesus because of the Gospels, because of the message of the witness of those who have believed because of the Gospels, Jesus is praying for you. All right. So first, pause and think about that for a moment. Jesus is praying for you. <laughs> That's a thought that is almost too overwhelming to bear. Okay. He goes on, that all of them may be one. Okay, so remember, we're exploring the theme of unity at the table. This is the thing that Jesus chooses to pray for. He's about to go to the cross. This is what Jesus chooses to pray for. Last week we talked about how unity isn't just a foregone conclusion. Unity within the church is not just like a minor thing that we should, eh, if we can do it, we should, we should try. It's very important, okay? This is what Jesus prays for. <laughs> he can pray for anything in this time. He can say, I pray for them all to be healthy, wealthy, and really smart. He doesn't pray that, right? Here's what he prays for. That all of them may be one, Father. Okay, so again, Jesus is praying to the Father. That they may be united. And notice 
now how he grounds this. And the example that he uses, just as you are in me and I am in you. Okay, so John is articulating this like deep theology of the Trinity, how God exists as three persons in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect unity for all time. Before the creation of the world, and they will exist in such a way in the new creation and when, for all time, for all eternity. Just as you are in me and I am in you. So even in Jesus' incarnate ministry, he was in the Father and the Father was in him. Okay, this is where our theology comes into play, where we have to kind of work through our understanding of the Trinity, which is a mystery to some degree, but we have to kind of try to grasp it to some degree so that we can understand this depth of unity that we're supposed to have in the church. Because Jesus says that in some way, the unity we're supposed to have in the church is analogous to the Trinity. So just as God has existed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect unity throughout all of history for all time, before time began even, so we, as individuals in Christ, are meant to exist in united community together. You guys get that? So community isn't just some like, again, we live in a very isolated, individualistic culture. Community is essential to our nature as humans. That's something that we often don't like to like, admit to ourselves sometimes. We like to think that we are independent and capable of doing everything that we want all on our own. Jesus is like, no, we need to be united. God exists as a trinity, and that reveals something about us that's analogous to us, is we need one another, and we need to be in community, and we need to be united one to another. He says, may they also be in us. What we're seeing is that this unity is grounded in our unity with Christ, our union with Christ, and therefore our union with the Godhead. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Okay, so we're going to talk about this a good bit later, but Jesus says that this is the core of our missional outreach. Notice that. May they also be in us. This unity that we have is that we share as being in Christ and therefore in union and unity with the Godhead is the core of why the world will believe that Jesus was from God. Okay? You guys catch that? Tracking? Cool, cool. We'll keep going. Okay. He's going to say it again later. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Okay, so this unity that we have is a gift of the glory that Christ has given us. Okay, we'll unpack this a little bit more as we go through it. Glory isn't a term that we often use to describe this. But first of all, let's just like stop and take note that it's a gift from Jesus. That this glory that we have as followers of Jesus is a gift from him. This isn't something that we achieve on our own. It is sourced in Christ. Jesus gave us the glory that he was given from the Father. That they may be one as we are one. And this is the, the, the baseline. This is the, the root of our unity is the glory that Christ has given us. Okay. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Jesus says complete, full, whole, unity. This is the goal of the church. It's not just some fake unity where we like gather together for one hour every week and we can like just make it work. <laughs> no, that's not it. It's complete. It's whole. 
It's a divinely ordained purpose, intended end that God has for it. It's complete. Then the world will know that you sent me. So again, this unity is foundational for the mission of the church. That if we want to share the message of the gospel, if we want to evangelize the culture, if we want to see revival in our culture, it starts with the church loving one another and out of that love for each other expressed in unity. And have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Okay, so Jesus says, pointed to the elect, those who are in Christ, those whom God has called. In John 6, 37, Jesus says, all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. So in some sense, God has called and given those who are in Christ to Jesus And Jesus promises that he will never drive them away. And Jesus is praying that all those who are among that group, God's people, he wants them to be with him. Again, think about that. Just the thought of, like, Jesus praying for you is almost too overwhelming to bear. Jesus really wants you to be with him if you're in Christ. Think about that, too. He just desires your presence to be with you. And for you to be with him. And why? To see his glory. To see my glory. The glory that you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus wants us to experience the fullness of his glory. And when we do so, we worship. The more we understand, the more we grasp, the more we experience the full glory of Jesus that he has in his pre-incarnate state, in his post-resurrection state, the more we worship. John tries to capture this in a later book that he writes called Revelation. Right? It's the last book of the Bible. And in the first chapter of Revelation, he encounters the risen Jesus in his vision. And when he sees Jesus, he falls flat on his face in worship. Because Jesus is so glorious, he's so magnificent, he's so wonderful. John has seen Jesus like on the Mount of Transfiguration. John saw Jesus risen from the dead. John saw Jesus walk on water and perform all of these crazy miracles, and yet when he sees Jesus in his post-resurrection state, he falls on his face in worship. He's like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you are so much greater than I have ever seen or could have ever even imagined, even after witnessing all of that stuff. So Jesus wants us to see the fullness of his glory so that we will then worship more and be in more awe and more wonder of him. That's what we need, is a bigger picture of Jesus' glory, so that we will worship more. Because guaranteed, all of our pictures of Jesus right now are too small. (laughs) They will not describe the reality of his true glory until we see him face to face. Righteous Father, Though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So Jesus is continuing to reveal God, his character, who God is to us. And in doing so, in that revelation, the love that Jesus has is going to be put in us, We will then live out that love that he has for us 
And Jesus Christ himself promises that he will be with us and he will be in us. In John 15, Jesus uses the analogy of vine and branches, or like the trunk of a tree and the branches of the tree. We are the branches, Jesus is like the trunk. And if we are not attached to the trunk of the tree, we can do nothing. He is our source of nourishment, he is our source of ministry, and everything that we do is sourced in Christ. And if we are not abiding in Christ, as he says in John 15, then we will not experience the fruit of that character, that inner life transformation that is a part of being among the people of God and being in Jesus. Even in John 15, as he's talking about the vine and the branches, he talks about the, the core of it, that like the, the true inner heart transformation that happens as you are in Christ is to love one another, he says, as Jesus has loved us. So as we talked about last week, that brings us to the question of how has Jesus loved us? By laying down his rights, his privileges of divinity, and giving himself joyfully, self-sacrificially for us. This is how we are to love one another in the church. And the, resulting, the result of that love will be unity in the church. I love that section in John 15. At the end of it, he just says, love one another. <laughs> it's like, ah! Just imagine Jesus just like, uh, in his mind, like verbally like shaking people, right? He's like, ah! Like, this is the message. <laughs> How can you miss it? Like, just love each other. It's like what I want to tell my kids all the time, right? It's just like, ah! You guys just love each other. Like, why don't you? <laughs> And that's Jesus' primary message to the church, is love one another like I have loved you. And out of that love will result in unity. But you can't do so on your own. You need to abide in Christ. Band, you guys can come and get set up. Here's our big idea for today. In the church, we're united in our union with Christ. So we, all individuals, are united in Christ, in the body of Christ, with Christ. Paul's favorite phrase is, in Christ. We are in Christ together. That's the source of our unity. We're united by receiving the glory that he has given us. This is not something that we attain in and of ourselves. It is through the glory that Christ has given us, and we'll unpack what that means a little bit later. And it is for, in part, the purpose of the mission of the gospel, so that people will know that Jesus is truly the Messiah, God in flesh. It is displayed in our love for one another and in our unity as a church. Let's pray. Lord, God, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you for these, these intimate words that you shared with the disciples, for the revelation that you are praying for us. And Lord, at the heart of what you're praying for, for your church, is unity. You're praying for us to love one another as you have loved us. So Lord, we open our hearts to receive the, the Spirit's work to form that love within us. Lord, to forgive those who have offended us, to give self-sacrificially for those who don't deserve it, and Lord, to love one another as you have loved us. May you fill us with that love and the resulting unity that comes from it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. We're going to sing a few songs together. If you need prayer while we're singing, Mindy is in the back. She would love to pray with you.
Our big idea is about unity in the church. We're united. Those who are in Christ are united. Union with Christ. This is so important, you guys. Remember, this is what Jesus chooses to pray for. On the night before he is to go to the cross, he chooses to pray for the unity of the church, for the unity of the disciples, the unity of those who will believe on the part of the disciples' message. This is what he focuses on, is unity. And that unity is <laughs> formed from the love that we are to have for one another. So how do we attain it? In the church we're united in our union with Christ. Remember in verse 23, Jesus says, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Verse 26, the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them, Jesus says. Jesus identifies with us and we identify with him. This is this deep mystery of the Christian faith that we are in Christ is the best way that Paul can describe it and articulate it. It's a mystery that through the Spirit of Christ, we identify with Christ. Like Paul prays, uh, I no longer live. He says, I'm crucified with Christ, so that I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. He's trying to articulate and, and add language to this deep spiritual meaning that is kind of impossible to describe, that somehow we are united with Christ. He refers to us as the body of Christ, that collectively, together, in the church, we form the body of Christ. We're individuals, but members of something bigger, and that is Christ. And he roots this in the Trinity, in our union with God, that we are made for this, that this is a part of our nature, is to be together in community, just like God exists, in perfect, loving relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the only way that we can be united with the Godhead is through Christ as our mediator. He is the God-man, the perfect one who has come to redeem us and set us free and to reconcile us to God. And therefore, we can be united to Christ and to God. And so as we ponder this deep mystery, sometimes we think of things like this and we're just like, ah, save that for theologians. Now, I think that this is the most important thing that you can do. <laughs> to develop the love that you need to be united as a church is to sit and contemplate your union with Christ. Get alone with God. To reflect on your union with him and how you are in Christ. To read in scripture and know Jesus, to truly know Jesus. To become so familiar with Jesus that you can finish each other's sandwiches, right? Frozen fans. Three for a curve there. <laughs> that was a big transition, man. I was really intense, and then I went to frozen. I did not have that written down either, so what on earth? <sighs> Yikes. Okay. <sighs> now I got to bring it back. What on earth? Okay. The goal of the Christian life is to be so know Jesus through prayer, communion with him on a daily basis, just sitting alone with him and being with him, contemplative prayer, through reading in scripture, so that even though we are not faced with the same exact questions that Jesus was faced with in his life and ministry, that we know how Jesus would act, 
We know what Jesus would say. We know how he would respond because we are just so familiar with him that we know him so well. When you think of somebody that you know very, very well, you can kind of, you can know how they would respond in one circumstance or another, right? That's the goal of the Christian life is to know Jesus so well, to so study scripture that when you're presented with questions or challenges that, that maybe aren't one-to-one with what you've read in Scripture, you know how Jesus would respond because you're so familiar with him, that you know him so well. You've communed with him throughout the day, <laughs> throughout your week, so you know exactly the way that he would respond and you can respond in kind. This is why we take communion. Remember, to remind us of our union with Christ, that this mystical union that we have with him, that we are in Christ and he is in us. And that we need him to be attached to him like a tree, tr- a tree vine or branch is attached to the trunk. That without it, we die spiritually, right? We have no source of nourishment and sustenance without being attached to Christ. And so as we partake of the bread and the juice, we're reminded that we need Christ spiritually just as we need food and drink physically. And so we need to be attached to him. And this involves surrendering everything to him. That it's no longer our will that we want to accomplish in life. It's no longer our retirement plan. It's no longer our 20-year goals for my career. No, it's what does Jesus want from me? That supersedes all of my goals and my will. How would Jesus want me to respond in this circumstance? I want to repay evil for evil and get back at the person that harmed me. But I'm surrendered to the will of Jesus, so how should I then act? Oh, I remember what Jesus did and how Jesus taught me to turn the other cheek, to not repay evil for evil, but to repay evil with good. I remember how Jesus went to the cross and died and while hanging on the cross, prayed for those who put him there, that God would forgive them. Okay, this is what I have to do then. This is how I must live. There's very real practical applications that we won't get if we're not abiding in Christ, if we're not contemplating our union with him and sitting alone with him and knowing him in Scripture so well. There are lots of really good Christian books out there, but they're only good in as much as they relate and to tell the truth of what Scripture says about Jesus. And almost all of it, (laughs) they're very close and they're good. But we need to know Jesus so well so that even when we're reading a book and it deviates slightly, perhaps, from the way of Jesus, we'll say, oh, I know Jesus, and so I can see the deviations. We have to know him so well. We just have to get alone with Jesus. Read scripture. Sit with him. Contemplate his glory. And we've received this unity by receiving the glory that Jesus has given us. Remember in verse 22, he says, I've given them the glory that you gave me, Why? So that they may be one as we are one. So it is rooted in this glory that Jesus has given us. D.A. Carson in his commentary on John's gospel says that glory commonly refers to the manifestation of God's character. So the way God is, his character in life. Or person in a revelatory context. So it's revealing who God is, his character, what God is like, and it's revealing God himself. And that's precisely what we see in Jesus. 
He is fully God, fully man, two natures unmingled in one person. So he is God. He has revealed God to us. And he's also revealed the character of God. And what Jesus says here is then he has given us this. So when we are in Christ, he has given us, revealed to us, not only revealed, but produced within us through the Holy Spirit, the character of God. Tracking? Okay, so we don't do this ourselves by working harder at it. We receive the character of God by sitting with Christ and contemplating him, by praying for the Spirit to produce this more within us. This isn't a work harder, guys. It's a know Jesus more (laughs) thing and fall in love with Jesus more and be more dependent on the Spirit of God than you are right now. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, referring to all believers, with unveiled face, he's just talked about Moses and how Moses used to come out of the tent of meeting after meeting with God, and he would be shining with the glory of God because he was in the presence of God and spoke with God as one speaks to a friend face to face. And so he had to put a veil over his face so that the people could actually see him. Now, Paul says, we can experience this glory of God and the presence of God through the Spirit of God who dwells in us, and we don't have to veil our face, that we all see this in one another, this transformation, this life transformation in the church when we look on the faces of one another, beholding the glory of the Lord. So when we sit and behold the glory of the Lord, and when we experience the glory of God on the faces of our brothers and sisters in Christ and their life transformed, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, he says. So in this transformation that we are to experience as believers in Jesus, this character, we're taking on the character of Christ. We're learning to love more like Christ, to joyfully self-sacrifice more like Christ. And as we do so, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another, and we're witnessing this transformation in our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. Then he says, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Again, this isn't a try-harder thing. This is a gift from Jesus. This is a gift from God. To experience this glory that God has for us, this transformed life. As we look back on our life five years ago, ten years ago, we should say, oh, I'm growing more in love. I'm becoming a more loving person. I'm learning to give up my rights and privileges for the benefits of those who have less. And I'm willing to do so joyfully because I've experienced that this is the way of Jesus, and this is the better way to live. As we experience that transformation, it also then gives us hope that one day, even though we still struggle with it now, we will fully be transformed into the image of Christ in the new creation, when our heart, our mind, our body will fully be transformed into this resurrection life that Jesus has given us. And so, again, this isn't a try-harder thing. (laughs) If we want to experience unity in the church, this isn't a try-harder thing. It's a receive more of God's glory thing (laughs) and sit with him and contemplate this and how he has given you his glory. What is the glory of God? What is the character of God? Do I really desire this character of God to be formed within me more so that I can love people the way Jesus loves us. And then finally, it is for the mission of the gospel. 
that this unity that is produced within us as a church community from the love that we have for one another by our union with Christ, by the glory that Christ has given us, is the heart and soul of the church's mission. Remember, Jesus says in verse 21, may they also be in us so that, so this unity that we share with the Father and with one another, is so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verses 22 and 23, he says, I have given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me. So the unity of the church, the love that we share for one another within the church is to be kind of the heart and soul of our missional outreach. I don't know about you, but that's not where I tend to go when I talk about mission and outreach, is loving one another in the church. We need to reframe our theology around this to the theology of Jesus. In our culture, we try to mass-produce evangelism. (laughs) We try to do what we think will be the most effective forms of evangelism. We try to sell out stadiums for events. We have massive attractional churches. Perhaps if you watched the Super Bowl last week, did anybody watch the Super Bowl last week? All right, a handful and some of you are lying. That's okay. Um, <laughs> it's, only, it's only the most watched event like, of the year, whatever. Um, perhaps you saw the uh, He Gets Us campaign ads, right? Super Bowl commercials. I have, to be clear, okay, I'm going to say this up front. I have no problems with the commercials, with the ads. They were really well done. They were good. I liked the message. I appreciated the message. I don't even have a problem with how much money they spent on the ads. Not a big deal. Um, I thought they were done really well. But I was listening to a podcast, and even after the Super Bowl, I was scrolling through Twitter, which I don't know why. Stupid idea. Um, Scrolling through Twitter, and lo and behold, they were very polarizing, and people were very angry about these. There was one crowd saying it was secret, secret for fascism. I don't know. Um, there, was another, there was another side of the argument that's like, oh, they didn't hit hard enough on the gospel. Like, they should have told people they're sinners in need of a savior. They blew their opportunity. Oh, golly. There's another crowd saying, yeah, you could have done so much good with this by spending money on something else and helping the poor, which ironically is exactly what Judas said, right, when the lady poured oil and anointed Jesus' head. But I digress. Okay, whatever. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> It's, it was polarizing, and, and people had hot takes about this. And again, I thought the message was good. I had zero problems with it. I thought it was fine. It's really good. But again, I think it's kind of symptomatic of, of how, we try to, um, how we try to think of evangelism and how we try to think of bringing people to know Jesus. Is we try to mass produce it and say, okay, the Super Bowl is going to have this many millions of eyeballs on it, so let's, let's do this to help reframe and reclaim the name of Jesus from uh, a lot of misconceptions that people have about who Jesus is. And again, it's fine. It's all good. And I think God can and will use it to bring people to know Jesus. So let's go. I'm I'm on board. But I think in a way, that underlying understanding or theology of evangelism is kind of missing the point. Right? It's, it's missing the bigger picture. And I heard Sky Jatani talking about this on a podcast, and I think he's absolutely right. We're kind of missing the point. We're missing the bigger picture. We're trying to, like, uh, like plug quarter-sized holes while there's a massive hole in the hull. 
right? <laughs> it's like the ship is sinking and we're like trying to plug all of these tiny little holes when we got bigger issues going on. Because the, the Jesus method of evangelism and outreach is rooted and centered in how are you loving the person next to you? <laughs> it's, it's a local community. It's a, it's a smaller vision of people getting to know Christians and, and finding the perception of like, wow, these guys really love each other. Like these guys are really willing to sacrifice for each other. They love each other. This is the goal. That people who are outside of the church, who are non-Christians, see the way Christians live and say, like, the way they love one another and the unity that they share together is so beyond what I've ever experienced, it must be supernatural. It must be from God. That, that's the heart of our mission and our outreach. And so instead of, like, Christians always get weird when we talk about evangelism. We struggle with it so much. Because it just feels like completely unattainable, right? Like I, I get awkward in like pointed conversations. I have a hard time asking deep questions. Like I won't know what to say if they ask all of these questions. I can't, I don't have a, the reach of Billy Graham or I don't have millions of Twitter followers. Like what can I do? Is what I often hear Christians asking each other. The Jesus method of evangelism is to just look across the aisle in the church and say, I'm going to love that person really well. That's evangelism. That's what it's supposed to be rooted in as a church. And that you can do. That you're totally capable of. You don't have to have gifts like Billy Graham. You don't have to have a massive reach. What you can do is you can love people well. It's not as glamorous. You won't get the accolades and the praise and the applause. But this is the Jesus way of evangelism. And you guys, I'm pretty convinced that our mission as a church will be stunted as long as people who are not Christians can experience more love and unity in their book club than they can at church. Or if they can experience it more with their sports team than they can at church. There's a reason people spend lots of money to go to football games on a Sunday morning <laughs> instead of to church. They're experiencing something that unites them with, they're connected with others in a way that they don't experience or haven't experienced in the church. Or they experience more unity in their political parties. And until the church is more united than those other spheres of the culture, our mission will be stunted. Because in our culture right now, we have such an opportunity, you guys. <laughs> We've talked a lot about the polarization of our culture. And even that ad, he gets this ad, reveals how polarized our culture is. It's a simple message about Jesus that nobody's actually arguing about the content of it for the most part. They just run to their corners and fight. Even that reveals how polarized our culture is. And how we as the church have such an opportunity to say, we're going to love each other really well and be united really well so that when people experience the disunity and the anger and the hatred in the culture and the world around them, but then they come to the church and experience the unity and love that we have for one another here, they'll say that. This must be divine. They must not 
be producing this on their own. This is, can only be produced by a work of God. So that's the heart. That's the goal of evangelism in the church. As Jesus says, is for us to just look across the room and love one another and be united together. And in doing so, we'll be representing the love that God has for us. And this is what we're remembering in communion. Our union with Christ, the glory that he has given us, <sighs> and how we can love one another for the mission of the gospel in the world. The communion elements are up here. I'm going to spread them out. Front rows, I invite you to come in first. When the row in front of you finishes, follow them into the middle. Hold on to the communion elements. There's two of them. Grab them, take them back to your seat, and hold on to them, and we'll pray for them and partake of them together. But as we're doing so, just reflect on these, your union with Christ, the glory that he has given you, and your concept of mission and evangelism. Is it rooted in how you love one another well and the glory that Christ has given us? Lord Jesus, we're just so in awe of you. That Lord, you, as God in flesh, would die in our place. That you would so love us you would give of yourself to such a degree, Lord, that we might be in union with you, that we might be united to the Godhead, brought into the presence of God because of the holiness that you have given us. Lord, it is amazing that you want us to be with you where you are, to see your glory. It's even more amazing that you would give us your glory Lord, help us to live in this resurrection life, this newfound life that we have for you, rooted in love for one another, like you have loved us. And in doing so, Lord, would you produce unity in your church, that we would be known for our love and our unity. And in that, the gospel Jesus, you would be irresistible to the world. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here, guys. If you still need prayer, Mindy would love to pray with you. If not, go in the peace of the union that you have with Christ.